0: Well, this is the podcast from Multifaith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead. I'm happy to have a return guest, Andrew Perriman. Andrew was uh, here previously with Michael Cooper discussing uh, a narrative historical approach to the gospel as it relates to mission. And we will get to some of that during the course of this conversation. But uh, I want to read a little bit about Andrew's bio. Andrew lives in London, he's the author of several books, including The Future of the People of God, Reading Romans Before and After Western Christendom. End of Story, Same-Sex Relationships, and the Narratives of Evangelical Mission, and his latest book that he'll tell us a little bit about at the end of our conversation, In the Form of a God, the Pre-Existence of the Exalted Christ in Paul, which is a fascinating-looking book. And uh, Andrew blogs, I love his blog, on the many benefits of a narrative historical reading of Scripture for both interpretation and mission, and folks can look in the program notes to find a link Uh, to that and to his books. And uh, lastly, Andrew is an Associate Research Fellow of the London School of Theology. Andrew, welcome back.
1: Thank you. It's good to be back, John. Thank you very much.
0: Do you have anything you want to add to that bio? Did I get the gist of it, what you're up to? Uh, No, that's fine.
1: Uh, That was a very good uh, good introduction.
0: Um, Thank you. Well, good. Yeah. Let's start uh, with some important background considerations. And you have this narrative historical approach that you're taking to the issues that you're dealing with. Can you summarize what that is and how that connects to understanding the Bible? Very basic. Yeah.
1: Question. Uh, yeah I mean, it's a basic question and it's always much harder to answer oh, yes. than I, I think it probably should be. Um, I, I sort of fell into using this this sort of combined Little phrase, narrative, historical. Uh, I, I didn't particularly go looking for a label for the approach. I found myself talking about narrative. I found myself talking about history, and they. You know, I've, I've kind of got used to it now, until it feels a little clunky, but uh, uh, it works for me, and and it it stuck. The. The point it makes, I I mean, there's all sorts of ways we have of reading um, the Bible, uh, depending on where we're coming from, uh, depending on what we're looking for and so on. Um, I I guess the the point of it is it it refocuses us uh, on the experience of, of a historical community. Uh, and that, that seems to me—we we may sort of come back to this uh, later—but it seems to me that what's at the heart of Scripture is is not. And I have to be careful how I say this, but it's not a saving event. I we, mean, we, we, there's a sort of classic model or hermeneutic model, which or rule of faith or something like that, uh, that, that sort of begins with creation fall, has Jesus come and redeems in the middle, and then ends with with something at the end—a new creation, final judgment, or whatever it is—and uh, you you sort of jump over. Uh, huge amounts of the Old Testament but you also jump over huge amounts of not just what, happened, what what's envisaged from the New Testament point of view but you jump over where we are now uh, so it it, so it tells us nothing about uh, how we deal with the present uh, where the church is at the moment so the, the, the point is I, this narrative historical part is it's the, I think of scripture as uh, in, in a sort of complex and untidy messy way Uh a community uh, talking about its a historical experience its a historical experience over time by telling a story, primarily. So this this story builds up over time. This is Israel telling the story, and then that story is taken up by Jesus himself and by his followers, and and projected on into the future. But it's you can't sep- you can't sort of emphasise one over the other. There's a narrative part to this, which so it means we can't reduce this simply to doctrine uh, and hope that the rest, you know, doesn't matter very much. There's a historical part, which means we we can't uh, make this simply a matter of things that we need to believe. It's somehow, what we are saying uh, in terms of what we find in scripture, or what we said, this is my belief. This is what makes me who I am. We can't separate that from uh, historical experience and where it started from was probably uh, one book you didn't mention was the the coming of the son of man, um, which was an attempt to sort of show how uh, New Testament eschatology for the most part, not in its entirety, but for the most part is the early church, Jesus in the early church, working out the implications for the historical community of his followers and for the churches and for israel for that matter at that time in relation to the nations in the foreseeable future how these things were going to pan out so it's it's the story that is being told about the past it's being the story that's being told about well this is how we're encountering god in the present this is what god is doing but it's also a story that, that follows on into the future and that doesn't uh permit us to to forget there's a historical part to this. And and if we get back to sort of thinking of our own context, I think that that becomes uh, very important.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that uh, I I drew upon that myself in the past, the creation, fall, redemption, the future kind of fourfold approach. When I was in a Mormon evangelical public dialogue in the years since then, I would not use it because I, I I think it has serious shortcomings, as you mentioned. Now, did, did you coin that term narrative historical or is it kind of cobbled uh, together from other thinkers or? I, I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> if I coined
1: it, it's, it was accidentally. There's nothing clever about the phrase. I mean, We, we, we have narrative theologies. Uh, we, I mean, you go back to Tom Wright's stuff. Uh, he's talking about narrative. He's talking about history and he's talking about theology. It doesn't really include the theology part. It seems to me that narrative and history are the, 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 some of the key, it, perhaps per, particularly in terms of sort of re, resetting our uh, approach to Scripture. These seem to me. If you bring theology in, that, that, that allows us to import. The, the risk there is we import actually what's a later theology into our reading of the New Testament. So I keep trying to sort of keep that out. Obviously, there's theology there, uh, but for, as a, a sort of hermeneutic rule of thumb. Uh, if, if we're looking for the story that a community is telling about its experience uh over time uh, often it, because it it's facing crisis in, in one form or another uh, that that gives us a good basis for for approaching scripture I'm not going to claim any any great sure. uh, uh, innovative, innovation for, for the term.
0: Now it's curious to me. We we've had you know you mentioned Tom Wright. We we've had uh, historical Jesus studies. We've had scholars look at the importance of the context of Second Temple Judaism and so on for yeah. rethinking Jesus and the Gospel. And yet it doesn't seem to have penetrated very deeply into evangelical culture. Why is it we're not thinking in terms of of history? Uh, I wow. Um, <laughs> partly because it's
1: difficult. Partly because. I, I, and this is off the, a bit off the top of my head clearly there's a there's a fear uh i mean evangelicalism i mean it's been fairly uh successful in in the western context uh no, perhaps globally over still is fairly successful um uh, for, for for various reasons uh and i i i mean i th- i think evan- the modern evangelicalism has been really important it it's enabled us to sort of uh, to find a new personal grounding for faith. And I think that probably in terms of, you know, what's going on in the church, uh, what the, the challenges that we face, that's that's been a really valuable and important development. But it, it's been done at the expense of that that sort of broader historical appreciation of the text, uh, of the New Testament texts, perhaps because of, of we, you know, we historical criticism has is is a is a bad word uh, in in well, it has been a bad word amongst evangelicals. Uh, there's there's very good evangelical critical scholarship now, and and much of the work that I draw on I, I feel is uh, broadly within an evangelical tradition. Uh, in, in as much as it takes scripture seriously and, and the, the testimony of scripture. But I, I would imagine there's it's partly fear. It's partly fear, uh, it's partly fear of, of sort of losing important doctrinal positions. Um, it's partly fear of confusing people. Um, and, and so much of this uh, exegetical work, you know, the, the, the interpretive work is as much about undoing uh opinions and perspectives and beliefs and views that that we've inherited and and, and not simple beliefs and views complex uh, systems of, of by, by which we we've sort of tried to to Create a, a broad understanding of what Christianity is all about. Much if to get back to the the original, you know, some sort of original understanding, uh, 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 at least a better understanding of how the New Testament spoke in its original context, means dealing with a lot of the presuppositions and uh, assumptions that we make. So there's a lot of undoing, uh, as much as there is a doing, in, in terms of uh, reading the New Testament. Uh, w- once you sort of, it, it's, it's quite possible that once you sort of pick up the thread of uh, this is, this is uh, just just sort of stand in the shoes of, of or the sandals or whatever Jesus and his followers wore, uh, stand where they stood and look at the world as they saw it and look into the future as they saw it. Once you, once you sort of shift your perspective, many things may fall into place relatively uh, easily. Uh, I, one of the things I find, I suppose, in, in sort of teaching on this is if you try and address things head on by saying you know this belief is wrong what you do what you should think is something else we might talk about hell for example um, if you just tell the story from jesus perspective uh and take into account uh the, how he uses jewish the jewish scriptures take into account the concrete experience of israel uh, and take into account the, the natural fact that that uh, he and other Jews at the time were looking to wondering how God was going to re- uh, resolve a crisis that they faced. And you start building up the picture, and you can tell a very coherent and meaningful historical story about this. And, and things start, you know, the, this, the teachings, the, the, the stories that he tells, and then, then suddenly they all sort of start lining themselves up around this in, in a fairly straightforward way. But it's it, you don't realize then how much you've let go of in order to to sort of begin to do that. So it's um, why it's complicated. I I mean,
0: yeah, that's kind of my story. It's kind of my story in a nutshell is rethinking, you know, kind of giving this perspective, uh, wearing Mm -hmm. it for a while and seeing that it makes sense and then saying, "Hey, wait a minute! There, there are some implications for what I assumed uh, theologically," which, which leads me to an interesting blog post of yours. I think it was fairly recent, titled "Theology and History on Totally Different Wavelengths." Um, how does how does theology, a theological assumptions, sometimes get in the way of giving this narrative historical approach? Uh, a, it makes it more difficult, mm-hmm. more challenging.
1: Yes, um, I mean it depends which theology we're talking about. I mean, mm-hmm. you, I mean it's been doing a fair bit on. Uh, I'm I'm not a great theologian, so I'm not an expert in the you know the history of theology. I have to I have to tread a little carefully here. Um, but but obviously, uh, if you come with a sort of strong trinitarian model and and say that this is how this that is a legitimate account of, of what they were trying to say about Jesus in in the New Testament I, I think you've you've got problems um I, in terms of a, a more uh, I mean probably from an evangelical point of view the uh, if you have a theology that is geared towards seeing individuals saved and, and whoever they are, um, and being reconciled to God through the, the the death of Jesus on the cross and I, I you know I don't have a particular problem with that I, I I I live and work and worship and do ministry and mission within any evangelical context I, that 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 experience is 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 very important but we we have so focused on that for the sake of perhaps because uh, uh I mean there's a sort of there's a, a history of, of recovery of that sort of evangelical mission from the 19th century onwards i guess in, in reaction to the collapse of, of christian society so if, if we can't work this out on a social level let's focus on the individual and so we focus on the individual and then we only need uh, uh you're a sinner you need jesus and then you're reconciled to god and the rest of it is then work out the implications of that life and and help the church go about that mission of saving more people so we, we've greatly reduced. Uh, understanding of what Jesus was doing, uh, you go back and, and put that in its historical context. So if you try and look at the, the significance of the cross, I, I, there's so much more going on there, um, both in terms of, of how that is seen as part of the history of Israel, why, why uh, does the uh Take the Son of Man language, for example. Why does he draw on the Son of Man language? Uh, I mean, there's a a complex background to that, but let's sort of just think about Daniel. Why is Daniel so important for explaining the significance of Jesus' suffering in particular? It's very much associated with the fact that that the Son of Man will suffer and on the third day be raised from the dead. Uh, that that uh, ties us into a story that is told in in Daniel, which is uh, part. I mean, you know, you, you know, it's a. It begins to sort of open up a whole different perspective on things. So I, I'm I mean, that's a rather messy answer to your question, uh, but, uh, but it's, uh, you know, you can pretty much land anywhere in in our in our that sort of grid theological grid that we have, and 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 argue well that's yes if all we're concerned about is the individual's final destiny and relationship with god and so on and not much more than that then then we are going to be excluding a vast amount of material in scripture and and probably trying to sort of shoehorn it into some very very tight very narrow uh, doctrinal position and 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 hope it works there with a, a...
0: Just kind of a basic understanding of the uh, narrative historical approach. Let's apply that to three different areas uh, for folks for some reconsideration. Uh, I find it interesting. There's a, I got a, an announcement of a forthcoming book uh, looking at, with different contributors as to how the gospel is defined. One of, them, one of the contributors is Scott McKnight, and I think he's taking kind of a kingdom approach, which may come closest to this narrative historical approach. Yeah. But how are we defining the gospel in light of a narrative historical approach?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, certainly the, the approach, we, we, we think of the gospel as a single thing. Uh, we, we, the gospel is good news. It, um, we, we, we understand that, so we can talk about good news. There's, there's, one, there's one good news, and that is that you can have eternal life through Jesus. Uh, confess Jesus as Lord and and you're saved that's the gospel and it is addressed to an individual and it it refers back to that that central event in 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 human history uh when, when God sends his son into the world to die uh for sinners that that is that's our evangelical gospel and probably uh I mean to a large extent that's how the church has understood it for the last goodness knows how many centuries um it's an, a gospel is an announcement of good news. You, know, you can sort of, I think, I'm not sure that, that probably is the first place the, the in the Greek Old Testament, you we have this sort of language of evangelion or is when the and I haven't looked this up recently. The Philistine when Saul dies and the Philistines kind of uh, take the news of Saul's death and they proclaim it in their in their towns and villages in their temples. This is good news. The death of a king is good news. It's it's a proclamation about the death, death of a king. It, it, you announce to your people that, uh, I mean, obviously this is, this is ironic from a sort of Christian point of view, but it's not so irrelevant. Um, the, the, for the Philistines, the death of Saul was good news. It's that sort of simple model. When, when something important, something significant happens, you go and tell it as good news to your people. Uh, so then we sort of jump forward to Isaiah and how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims to Zion, your God reigns. So there we have uh, good news about your God reigning. And in the, uh, the, the Aramaic Talmud, that, that, is, that is a reference there to the kingdom of God. Uh, So, again, uh, it's it's a public announcement. This is something that the messenger travels across the mountains to proclaim to Jerusalem, your God reigns and he will bring the people back and he will restore Jerusalem. This is a public announcement of what God is going to do. It it could be any public. If God is going to do something good and and significant, uh, that is proclaimed to the people uh, and perhaps beyond Israel as good news. So, in principle, anything that, that God does that has dramatic, uh, perhaps p- particularly saving significance, but it could be it could, saving may not be right at that, the, the key element in it. Then let's call that gospel. So, when we get to Jesus uh, comes into Galilee and proclaims the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. But repent and believe in the gospel. Rather than just assuming that he's he's talking about, I you know we're talking about my death and the salvation of all people beca- on account of that. There's no, there's no reference to that. It's about the kingdom. This is good news that God is going to act as king in some dramatic, significant way. And, and once we've started to sort of read this as Israel's story that Jesus is sort of picking up on and telling in a different way with a, with a different future in mind, but it's still telling Israel's story, then his good news becomes... Uh, is it, we, we realize that his good news has to do with what God is about to do to save his people at a time of crisis. That's, uh, that would be a narrative historical reading. How is Jesus telling the story of his, the historical experience of the people at this time? Take that another stage, um, then we sort of, what, after his death and resurrection, and they take the a good news out into the pagan world. Now they're not uh primarily telling the Greeks uh I think it's slightly careful here. In, in one sense, they are—they—they they, they take a message out about what God was going to do to His people. So they, Peter goes to Cornelius and said, "Look, look at what you know. What's been happening in Israel? Or this is what's been happening in Israel. What what has God has been doing through His Son, and so on and so forth." That's Israel's story that He's telling. It only concerns Israel. It, it's sort of the fulfillment or the you know the outworking of, of that gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Remarkably, Cornelius in his household believe it. And, and take it more seriously than many of the Jews were doing. So then you you, you get to sort of wonder, well, how is what, this good news, this, what, what was good news for Israel, how is that becoming good news for the nations? And I, I think part of what Paul brings to this, but you see it in other places, it's very clear in, in Revelation, is uh, the the assumption is that if God has really seated him at his right hand, seated Jesus at his right hand, and given him this authority, out of scripture, out of the Jewish scriptures, it comes this idea that he will rule over the nations, uh, not just over Israel as Israel's Messiah. Israel's Messiah will come to rule over those nations which had for so long opposed uh, and oppressed and, and so on. So the, the, and in more recent history, the Greeks and the Romans. These become the objects of this good news. So the we, the, the story is 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 unfolding, but it, the the good news changes along the way because it's it's found that that God is not just doing something in Israel; He's doing something for the sake of His glory and reputation among the nations. So that's that's the good news. You you can personalize that. They had to personalize it. It's not just. Uh, a national level thing that everyone else ignores. If you hear that story, you have to decide because it hasn't, it, it's not fulfilled immediately. How, what stance do you take uh, in relation to that as an individual? What what are you going to do? And uh, you know, for many, they they didn't believe it or you know whatever they they reject it. They they turn down that offer to be part of what God is doing. To to transform, to reform his people, and transform his, the status of his people amongst the nations, and, and establish his own glory amongst the the pagan nations, you can you can turn that offer down, or you can take it up, and you you know you you become part of that movement. You so you baptize, you're baptized into this thing that God is doing, this this good news thing that that's unfolding, that's working itself out over decades. Over generations, over centuries, as as it turned out, Uh, I mean that would that would be how I would put it. I mean, I know we're sort of getting into an area. People are somewhat inclined to recognise how significant uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple was for Jesus' message. People are much less inclined to to take on board my argument that, uh, in the same way, the the conversion, the judgment on pagan Rome, uh, and the conversion of the empire, is very much within the sort of the purview of Paul's eschatology um and, and just to make the point uh, I think the New Testament looks beyond that and sees a final end of all things a final judgment because the Creator has to you you cannot have theologically have this this thought that in the end uh sin and evil and Satan and death have the final word. God has to have the final word on this. But in the meantime, God is having a word about some really significant historical developments, and one of the words that is used for those developments is gospel. It's good news. Believe it, have faith in it, trust it because these things will work out as He has promised.
0: I appreciate at the beginning of that that answer you you kind of summarized it what we might call a traditional or mainstream kind of evangelical view moving from a narrative historical understanding of the gospel to the question of salvation. There's this tendency, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's about the postmortem state saving me from punishment and into a better afterlife and this kind of a thing. Mm. What would a narrative historical approach say about rethinking the question yeah. of salvation? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I the,
1: the approach I would take, I mean, would go back to right to the beginning where I said that I, to. to I think it helps to think of scripture as the story of a people. So you go right back on why is there a people? Well, there is a people to serve the creator God when, when the whole of, of humanity, every, the rest of humanity is turned against him, you know, right up until the Babel story. Then he calls Abraham uh, in the shadow of the Babel empire motif uh, or tower uh, to be, begin something new. He, in, he's a new creation. Uh, in the first place. He's blessed. He will go forth and multiply and fill the land so a, that God will give him. He's a new creation in microcosm. And then you work through the, the the patriarchal narratives, and Joseph in Egypt and that whole thing. They're brought out of Egypt and they're given this sort of task to to be a priestly people in the midst of the nations. God has chosen them, redeemed them. Given this responsibility, they uh, have this, this huge Uh, responsible, you know, they've taken on this huge responsibility to serve this living creator God in the midst of uh, often hostile, unsympathetic pagan pagan nations. So once we sort of set that up, um, you can, you can talk about salvation. How is that people saved? The people goes into exile. How is it saved from exile? Uh, How is it saved from the Assyrians in, in, you know, uh, the the whole thing with Emmanuel and God with us? Uh, when this Assyria becomes a threat to Jerusalem, how is God saved? Or how is Ahaz convinced? Or how does Isaiah try to convince Ahaz? Well, the whole thing about uh, a young woman who conceives. And, you know, this sort of storyline plays out. Israel needs to be saved on many occasions. When we get to the New Testament, I, I, there's some sort of sense that this, there's a sort of final reckoning coming up for Israel. Uh, This can't go on forever. This, this faithlessness, this rebelliousness, Um, uh, and uh, that seems to be John the Baptist's message. It's it's certainly Jesus' message that this is a last chance. God has sent messengers to Israel. He sent the prophets. Now He has sent His Son, Um, because He sees a, a catastrophe coming that will bring uh israel's existence in the land with jerusalem and the temple uh that that whole embodiment of, of what it meant to be a faithful servant people in the midst of the nations all, all brought in nations brought to an end uh, disastrously uh, at, at great cost uh so you know we have a we have a situation from which this people needs to be saved a crisis from which the people need to be saved so i i think um when the angel says to joseph in matthew um you will call him jesus because he will save his people from their sins this is not this this sort of proto-evangelical gospel okay we'll start with with saving individual jews and then we'll get on to saving individual gentiles it's his people israel he will save them from the sins that are bringing this disaster upon their heads in the coming decades um so uh, salvation then means take Zacchaeus. Um, Zacchaeus is saved, um, not by the death of Jesus. He's saved by repentance, which is what Jesus has called people to repent and believe that God is doing something here. And part of his response is to you know, I will reimburse. I will um, make good the uh, the. the what i have done to other people and and jesus says to him you know this this is a a son of abraham that's what salvation meant for zacchaeus it's to be restored as a descendant of abraham who would have a future you become part because this you know that was the promise abraham believed sorry no that yes that was the promise Abraham believed the promise that God gave him, that his, you know, he would have these descendants, and then from him a great nation would come and so on. And it's on, on the basis of that that he was reckoned as righteous. He was justified, the whole justification by faith thing, is you, you are justified for believing that you have a future. So at, at a moment uh, when Israel's future looked very uncertain, the future of this servant people, this priestly community looked very uncertain, uh because of the prospect of, of war um we hear of, of this one person who has repented who has made good on the sins that he's committed against people as a tax collector uh the the way he's he's, he's defrauded people he reimbursed uh state their wealth or whatever it is anyway um and but he the, you know the, the key thing is he becomes again a, a son of abraham therefore he has a future he, that's what salvation meant in that context. I think it's to have to be part of a, a people that is being reformed, redeemed, uh, empowered to, to to carry on the the mission, but also critically to have a, a new future. And I think you do the same thing. The, the 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 difference when you get into the the Gentile world is is that you're no longer simply a Jew repenting and becoming part of redeemed israel you are a gentile believing in that story about redeemed israel and i'm beginning to sense in the spirit through the spirit through the teaching of the apostles and so on through reflection on on the psalms and on the prophets what god was doing in israel is going to have huge significance for the nations of the greek and roman world it's going to change everything so you know in this broad sense for a gentile to be saved is still to become part of a community that has this significant future. Only this time, it's not simply, it's a community that's gonna survive the destruction of the the war against Rome. This is a community that eventually will be vindicated for its belief that every knee uh, in the pagan world will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So salvation is becoming part of of a redeemed community. And I think that's important. I think one of the the problems with the modern evangelical paradigm is it, it 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 leaves the individual saved and still struggles to make sense of that sort of participation in church. And and even at the at best, you're simply saving more people. And I I think if you start at the other end, start with the existence of a community over a long period of time. Uh, experiencing the the ups and downs of history uh, from one crisis to another, needing to be saved along the way, um, that gives us a purpose. So you you are saved into something meaningful and purposeful, and something that that already, by definition, has a mission. We've had that mission ever since Moses, ever since Abraham, is to serve the living Creator God who made the heavens and the earth. <laughs> Uh, and so on. So I I think, to my mind, that helps us give a real purpose back to the, this whole language of uh, gospel in the first place, uh, of salvation, secondly.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. I, I find it very helpful. Um, not only does evangelicalism emphasize uh, the gospel as they understand it in a personal salvific context, but one of the frequent motivations is avoidance of hell. Uh, understood as a post-mortem metaphysical location of, you know, eternal conscious torment and this type of thing. Um, if we step back, if we can bracket that theological assumption for a while and look at a different way, a narrative historical approach, as we see it in, in the New Testament, it paints a different picture. What What is that picture like? Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think this is a very good way of, of highlighting uh the significance of, of reading in this this narrative historical way um I mean it's it's relatively straightforward with Jesus it's a little bit more complex with say paul or or the book of revelation but I think basically the same principle uh applies um there's a sort of strong thread running through scripture right from uh right from the beginning that the wages of sin is death and destruction uh and i and I guess that's that that's Hangs over humanity existentially. Uh, we, we all face death. We do not live forever on the on this earth. Uh, but it's also in biblically it's expressed through uh destructive events. So you know the flood, for example, would be uh, an obvious one. Uh the the Babylonian invasion uh and exile um in the sixth century is, is another example what, what uh, all that was good and beautiful and blessed by God is destroyed because Israel was unrighteous and uh, I so I that seems to me the sort of the, the basis for the you know that's where we have we where we start when we come to thinking about uh that we use the term hell um Jesus talks about Gehenna um so let's let's think about that and what my argument and uh, is in, in simple terms you go, go back to Jeremiah um, I might have a look at the passage because I think this is helpful. And Jeremiah 7, which actually, I mean, incidentally, uh, this begins, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. I think Jesus sort of sees himself very as as doing something very similar to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is told, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Uh, Jesus goes to the temple. Very, you know, makes a very strong point. We're arriving in Jerusalem, going straight to the, the, much you know, straight to the temple, and condemning what he finds there. I mean, it's in this same passage that, that he, he refers to this, this verse eleven. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Um, and F goes on, therefore thus says the Lord God behold my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground it will burn and not be quenched that sort of language we've already heard in, in the Gospels but then we get on towards the end of chapter 7 uh, we have this therefore behold the days of coming declares the Lord when it will no more uh, sorry I skipped a bit they have uh, I'll go back to start verse 30. The son, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to divine. So we're very much thinking about the, tes- the temple. And they have built the high places of Topheth, Toph- Toph- uh, which is in the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And the Valley of the Son of Hinnom is, I, I, I think, uh, the Gehenna, the, the Valley, of when Jesus uses the term Gehenna, uh, He's referring back to this. It, it's the, the valley of the son of Hinnom. Uh, they burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command. So you have got this image of, of bodies burning in a fire in this valley. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere and the dead bodies will pile up in, 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 and, and, and become food for the birds of the air. Uh, and so on. So what you've got there is an image, it's the references to the Babylonian invasion, the siege of the city. Uh, So many will die in the city as a result of the siege. There was nowhere left within the walls of the city to bury them. The only option is to throw them over the walls of the city and they will lie in the valley of the son of Hinnom uh, to be consumed by fire perhaps. Um, If not by fire, then certainly by wild animals. When interesting, interestingly, in Josephus' account, which I don't have in front of me, but his account of the the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans, that's exactly what happens. Uh, they run out of room to bury the dead uh, who died because of famine and disease, and in you know in, in internal fighting amongst the Jews in the city. Uh, so they are throw, the bodies are thrown over the walls of the city into uh, the valley of Gehenna, uh, into Gehenna in the valley of the Son of Hinnom get my terms a little confused here so we draw a straight line from jeremiah to josephus that runs right through jesus uh, what jesus has to say about being thrown into gehenna i i mean the, the, yes if you look uh, you know elsewhere in jewish writing apocalyptic writings of the time uh, the language of gehenna begins to sort of take on um uh, different overtones of sort of this sub it's the place of the dead where people suffer. Uh it becomes associated with Tartarus. I don't think Jesus does that. I, I think he's he he identifies uh not in that not with that extra biblical uh, apocalyptic tradition, but very much with the biblical prophets. And I, I think we see that just read those verses from Jeremiah 7 and make that point very clearly I think when uh his part of his message about What is coming upon Israel is is put in the imagery and language that he's found in Jeremiah of of the dead being thrown into the van. And and the dead are there as corpses. They're dead. Uh, They're not suffering after dead. This is simply a sign of the horror of of war and siege and famine and disease. This is what this is what it's like. Uh, You know, it's it's a little bit like what we've seen in, in Turkey and Syria. In the last few days how this it, it's not war we, we've seen war in Syria but you see the bodies piling up in the streets because it, you you haven't got the resources to bury them it's that's that's the, the shocking experience and I think that that is in, in a narrative historical perspective just looking at, at how this works uh, within the Gospels at the moment uh, that seems to me what Jesus is getting at that that if, if Israel does not repent, then this will be the the consequence, the horror of war and siege and death, and so on. And so he draws on the language of Jeremiah. He draws on the language of uh, Isaiah, because the, the, Isaiah has similar imagery of going out after and seeing the bodies of those who rebelled against Yahweh uh, being consumed eternally by fire, uh, as a, as a sign to the world of of, of you know how seriously God takes these things. I mean, we don't like to think in these terms particularly, we, we we tend to sort of emphasize the love of God rather than this this wrath part, but I, I don't think we can really understand Jesus uh, mission without taking that. Well, I mean this was a history that he had to deal with. We can't, we, we have this uh, theology that, that goes from his death and resurrection to Pentecost and the church goes off and proclaims good news to everyone. And, and Israel, God's people, God's chosen people, go through this, this nightmare of the war against, absolute nightmare of the war against Rome. I, I think that Jesus was, was uh, very conscious of that and deeply moved by that prospect and, and willing to lay down his own life to save his people from that outcome, at least the same some, those who would take up their own cross and follow him down this narrow road leading to the life of the age that would come after uh, this uh, this dreadful outcome. Well, it, I Go ahead. No, 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 that's fine, John. It,
0: yeah, it, sometimes when I share these alternative perspectives and different interpretations, some of the pushback, just in case viewers and listeners might be thinking some of this themselves, uh you you're liberal you're progressive you're postmodern you just don't like the you know the, the true teaching of scripture for, for me and i think for you and others it is a an, a an attempt to go deeper and take the scripture more seriously in its narrative historical context and so yeah. on that leads to these alternatives not any kind of evasion of, of biblical teaching is that correct
1: well, I, I certainly don't. I, I, that's exactly how I see it. I, I certainly don't think it's liberal to to bring into this uh, the war, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, as some sort of act of God. This the, the, Certainly, this is how it would have been understood at the time. Uh, that's not a very progressive argument. That That's in some ways as problematic uh, in terms of, a, you know, how do you justify divine action? But at least it's real. Th- this did happen in history, and you can't, Go read the Old Testament and not notice that some pretty awful things happen, and it, it's the so part of the storytelling done by you know particularly by the prophets is is trying to precisely wrestling with that problem of how uh, 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 people so deeply committed in principle to serve the living God still you know goes through such uh, uh, these these uh, dreadful experiences. So it, yes. I, I think it does take scripture much more seriously. It, it, holds, it allows us to tell a complete story, uh, all the way through, and a, a, a story which is meaningful all the way through. Um, but I mean, obviously, that that gives us a very different basis then for what, what do I say to my neighbour, my you know non-Christian friend, or whatever, and. I, we're working through this. We're not there yet, and and there's nothing wrong with with inviting people into a relationship with the the living God through Jesus Christ. Um, I I just think it. Uh, my my feeling is that that we are not going to be able to sustain that very well in in the in the future uh, for. You know, all sorts of reasons um, because we are uh, because of the nature of, of sort of the secular world that we're part of. Right. So I think we are we're going to be pushed back to, to, to give a much better account of Christian origins. Uh, I think that's why that's become such a key uh, question in recent decades. Uh, we need to understand this better because there's clearly so much more going on uh, than is apparent in your sort of the typical. Evangelical uh, account of things. So, yeah, I, I think there is a, a question of the the, the credibility of, of of Christian faith at stake here.
0: Well, it, it seems to me that uh, this gives us an opportunity to to rethink the meaning of things that, as we talked about in this conversation, gospel, question of salvation, hell, those kinds of things, and it can create space for us. To, to rethink what how these stories and our faith connects to the present issues and challenges mm-hmm. that we face. And you write a lot about this in connection with more secularism. I'm dealing more with pluralism but yeah. if we tr- if we try to connect some dots and, and I know my area of emphasis is not yours um and that's okay but it, it seems to me that we tend to when it comes to other religious traditions, we tend to relate to the religious other, in terms primarily of fear, I know love is in the mix, but it's primarily fear, fear of the other, which leads many times to apologetic refutations of their worldviews, or fear for the other in terms of, quest- we're fearful they're going to go to hell, in, in, understood in terms of this eternal conscious torment. <clears throat> and I'm wondering if this approach, this narrative historical approach, gives us an opportunity to and create space for different forms of engagement uh, in relating to some of the challenges of our day, whether it's pluralism or secularism or something else, yeah. what would your thoughts be?
1: <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes, I mean I think we sort of talked about this a bit before. Uh, the, the, I, the, here, I'm, I'm sort of getting out of out of my comfort zone. True. Sure. Um, it's it's the right question to be asking, certainly. Uh, one of the I I okay. Once we sort of get to uh the conversion of the nations of the greek and roman world which i would say is you know in, in realistically historically that is the outcome in view um in in the new testament and and that's it was an extraordinary outcome uh you the, the, we get into sort of christendom so we 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 then got say 1500 years uh, where that Victory is ambiguously, yes, embodied in the historical experience of the Church uh, in Europe, and as it spread out across the world uh, of, uh, during during that period, I mean, so Christianity becomes a global phenomenon, and so on. Uh, on the assumption that, and I think, sort of one of the things that changed is it the, the, the assumption was that this is this. this Christianity is a universalizing phenomenon. It aims to uh, bring all people into this. So the the, the, the obje- object of the exercise is to get the maximum number of people saved, which obviously brings it into competition with, uh, conflict with uh, other religions, uh, which have their own view of God, or being of, of the, you know, the spiritual and so on. And it brings us into conflict with uh, secularism, as you say. So you, you've got this expansionist. It, it, it should it should keep expanding until every, it, the gospel is proclaimed, been proclaimed in every nation on earth to every people, uh, and then the end will come, uh, and and our job will be done. I'd, I I I don't think that's the best way of thinking about it. I think it's much more helpful to sort of go back to where we started. I think all we need the 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 the, the object of the exercise is to safeguard, to preserve. Uh, a servant community throughout time so that the, the the living god always has a people who will bear witness to him who will worship him uh, in, uh, in in holiness in truth uh, and and everything else and that's a really difficult thing to do uh as you see it look you know for a while with the christendom thing it looked like this might sort of take over the whole world but it didn't it, the whole thing collapsed and and secularism came along um islam came along uh, and and so on and we run up against the asian religions and and you know we realize we're in a much more complex pluralistic uh world than than we realize that it isn't simply going to roll over and uh say yeah we're, we're all going to be, become christians that's not that's not what's going to happen so uh, I, I think you know what's going on now is still you know, from our point of view as as God's people, as Christians, as people trying to sort of think this through in the modern period. Uh, what's going on now is is again w- the church having to be saved, uh, partly saved from itself, saved from the crisis of, of modernity. And certainly, you know, looking at this from the Western context, so uh, you know, so much of what we're, the church is is doing is is, is struggling to find how, do we do we need to relocate move into different types of buildings do we change the music do we change the language uh that we use do we yeah whatever we need to do to, to, to try and keep up to date and keep uh thinking that we have a viable future again we are we, you know we will be justified by our faith in the god who has a future for his people uh i think is what it comes back to so it's not the, the the issue here is is not how do we convert everyone? How do we get everyone to agree with us? How do we get everyone? Uh, I think you know. I think don't think hell is an issue. The, the the judgment on 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 sinful humanity is death, and the last judgment will be uh, in in John's symbolic language the death, which is that you know that lake of fire, which is the second death. I think it's it's annihilation. That that's the consequence of being human because humanity has turned its back on God. Um, so uh, we we accept that most people accept that secular people accept that, uh, that death is the outcome. Um, but this there is a question as whether uh, or not someone is called put it in those terms called to be part of this servant community. Uh, so that's sort of i i think you know much most of the language all still works we can still proclaim jesus as lord That the spirit is still important we can still say that jesus it's because jesus died uh for sin that, that this option is open to us so we can we can keep that all that that stuff is still there all that language is still there but we've sort of narrowed down the 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 range of this a little bit we 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 lowered uh reduced our ambitions we we've we uh, recognising that we are a people in the midst of other people, so that that opens up the potential for different types of engagement, um, and more constructive uh, types of engagement with other people groups or other cultural groups or other religions. Now, uh, you know, may- maybe in that you mentioned the book on same sex relationships. Um, and I mean that was a difficult argument and I I doubt if anyone I doubt many people have read it and been convinced by it Uh, but it is it was an attempt to sort of think this through in a narrative historical way to get from the very negative uh, approach to uh, same-sex sexual behavior that we have in scripture I don't think there's any question about that to to where we are today in, in the modern world where you know, even even where there is opposition in the church to same-sex marriage, there is a, there is a willingness to affirm the the sort of the human integrity of, of same-sex people by, by and large. Um, that that's that's a very different outlook. I and and so one one part of my uh, one of the things that, that I wonder there is well actually, um, one of the things that that we can do is bring out the best. Rather than assuming that secular society, which is making these choices about um, you know, sexuality, about you know we got the new anthropology emerging, how how it, it, that that's that's going off on its own course. We're not going to stop that. I don't think we, we, the, the 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 boot is on the other foot now. Uh, we we've lost. We've lost the right we to. to dictate how people live their lives we we can perhaps preserve a distinctiveness on our own part but i i I would i'm beginning to think well you know one of the things that the church can do and i'm i haven't thought this i I probably should have gone back and read that chapter i i I could probably do a better job of this than i than i am but I, i do think there is some potential here to affirm the best in what we encounter and and that's a, that can be a critical affirmation. It doesn't assume that everything that the, the world is trying to do is right, or that everything that we encounter in Islam is good. But it, it, it at least sort of gives us. I, that I began to think that there's a there's a way of sort of framing this in. Uh, terms of the role of, that we have, the role that we that has been entrusted to us as that servant, priestly prophetic people, is to to bring out the, the best in what we encounter. But you know to do not denying the tensions, uh, not not losing a, a sense of distinctiveness, but being a priestly people for the sake of what we encounter, as well as for the sake of God and in that process uh you know where where the option where the opportunity presents itself you we bring people into 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 become part of god's people and in doing so they experience the full blessing of a relationship with the living god uh, as best we can facilitate that within uh, a rather um uh, church community
0: well, even though you were outside your comfort zone, I've I found that uh, very helpful. My, my hope is that a narrative historical approach, if folks would would consider it, reflect on it, I do think it creates space for us to, to still, as you say, invite people uh, to to uh, be a part of uh, the worship of the one God through Jesus Christ, and yet rethinking that soteriological emphasis that has so long. Uh, kind of held uh, the Christian encounter with other religions. That's been the primary lens through which we do engagement. I think additional space can open up for other perspectives, like the uh, Christian virtue ethic. How do we engage in love of neighbor as well as love of enemy, uh, hospitality and neighborliness, and these kinds of things? Uh, I just think we need a broader framework, and I, I see the narrative historical approach as providing yeah. opportunities to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess Jonathan uh, to think. Uh, it, it's there is uh, a sort of secondary component. Is John? I'm, I'm. It's shut me up if I'm beginning to. No, you're be fine. hear um, <laughs> Part of this is sort of drawing on. You know what? What is the ideal that we're imagining? And I think you know, we given that ideal of of a new creation. Um, in scripture but in bringing that into history you're always having to sort of make compromises we we can't bring that final vision into our real experience I, I just uh, my, my feeling is it's, it, it's that this is an eschatological dynamic uh, but it recognizes that we bring it into real situations and so what is what is a good way of being human uh, for the secular west for the pluralistic uh, culture in which we live how how can we best uh speak about that proclaim that live it out in as in ourselves and, and that's a, a key part of this in, in how, to what extent are we living it out among ourselves what we think is 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 uh, approaching a best for humanity in this context at this time given you know all that has happened given all that we face and you know we can bring uh, climate change, perhaps into that. If, if, we're, uh, if we're concerned about uh, what lies down that road, yeah. So it, it, yes, it, it's, it goes back to what the what the early church was doing in, in bringing together Jew and Gentile and you know, people from all sorts of different contexts was embodying the coming rule of Jesus over over this whole oikumene, the empire. Uh, they 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 were an, uh, a prophetic embodiment as real communities having to deal with real people problems uh but they they held up in in the process they became a light the city set on a hill or whatever for for this this thing that lay down the road this good thing that they believed that god was going to do in their world uh i think we could do something similar um but it, it we have to sort of reimagine it for our context and not simply feel that all we need to do is go back and do this sort of simple thing that the church was sent out to do to say it's a safe people
0: um well i think the narrative yeah. historical approach is a very helpful way a context to do that reimagining so i appreciate yeah. you having this Thank conversation you. but i said at the end i wanted to give you an opportunity you've got a new book out which looks fascinating uh in the form of a god what's what's that book all about yeah right um and, and it's a bit of a
1: departure it's still very much uh thinking along the same lines uh but uh, I mean, it's it was just reading stuff. I reading a lot of the early high Christology stuff that there's there's a lot of it around at the moment, and having this sort of question in the back of my mind, I'm not I'm just not feeling totally convinced, but not knowing where to sort of engage with it. Now, the, the book is a very narrow it deals with a very narrow uh, question. Did did Paul believe uh, that Jesus pre-existed his human life? Uh, so it, you know in some sense that, that would allow us you know that provided a uh, a template for uh, the the eternal son of the, the sort of trinitarian thinking and so on um and i, I it, what got me the, the what, what engaged me in that was was looking at this uh for this being in the form of a god he did not count equality we got that this is sort of normal translation I wouldn't translate it this way no equality we've got a thing to be grasped so there's a there's a, a classic essay by Roy Hoover looking at uh the the expression uh equality we've got a thing to be grasped that that whole that whole expression and I think uh, it's sort of going through looking very carefully at all the examples he's he's, he's Tom Wright and, and many uh have endorsed his his perspective on this and then what what they think. Well, what Hoover argued, what he thought the evidence pointed to was this is not um, something that he didn't have. It's something that he had equality. He had equality of God, but he didn't cling to it Uh, it, uh, rather than something that he didn't have. But he he made a a snatch at But the the examples that Hoover cites, uh, the the, the, the literary evidence for this points to the idea of someone's presented with an opportunity. And you, in in that moment, you have to you, you can either snatch that opportunity, to seize the opportunity, or or let it go, reject the opportunity. It's it's never something that you actually have is in in your position, um, in your sorry in your in your possession. It's always something that is presented to you at that moment. So I, then but it, I, Hoover is uh, sort of betrays his thinking at that point and goes back to this idea. Somehow, I don't quite know how he did it that actually this equality with God thing was something that Jesus already had because he was pre-existent with God in heaven. He had equality with God. He didn't hang on to it and he said emptied himself and became human. Uh, it, the, the language looks much more like Jesus is presented with an opportunity um, and doesn't take it, uh, is, 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 so it seems to me. So then we sort of start looking at, at the rest of the verse and, and in the form of a God, in, in more faith that is is the, the greek and it's usually translated in the form of god being in the form of god therefore this is taken to be some statement usually not not exclusively uh, about his pre-existent condition the the problem is it, it's almost impossible uh I, I, this is cutting a very long story very short i mean the, there are four or five chapters on this in the book and not much not much it's ridiculous um I don't think that works. But this expression, the use of the word morphe with with Theo is used widely in pagan literature and uh, to talk about the form of the gods. So uh, my argument is that actually what, this is not some deep theological or Christological uh, statement that is being made. It it reflects, this is a a, a passage in praise of Jesus, uh, written from the perspective um, composed from the perspective of, of someone who's come out of paganism. And how would they have looked on the earthly Jesus? Well, they would have seen him as, in, in their categories as a divine man type of figure or a, a, a God who had sort of revealed himself on earth. And he starts performing these miracles and making these profound statements and so on. So I think it's it's the, the encomium begins from, very much from a pagan perspective. Uh, Jesus is was perceived as this is what the language really demands uh, in outward appearance so you look at him and you say this this is a god or a godlike person or a human who has godlike characters um and yet he's when he was presented with an opportunity to to have a, 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 a an equality with god uh, and that language has its sort of resonances elsewhere in jewish and uh non-Jewish literature, he turned that opportunity down. The the equality we've got there, I think, is about kingdom. It's it's it, this, behind that is the idea of a king, a pagan king who makes himself equal with God. We have examples in scripture, we have the king of Babylon, um the prince of Tyre in in Ezekiel, we have uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in in Daniel, uh we have Herod in uh and we have the man of lawlessness in in um to Thessalonians, for example, and just to be but there are numerous examples. Uh so he Jesus turns down the offer of a godlike rule over the nations, a, a Caesar like rule over the nations. When did he do that? Well, I think it's they think the, the, the composer of this encomium, this this praise of Jesus is thinking of the temptation in the wilderness. When and that's on the front cover of the book. One of the things that Satan offers him is, is the rule over the nations, and this is Luke, over the nations of the Oikoumene, effectively of, of the empire, effectively having a Caesar-like rule, if you would only bow down to Caesar, sorry, to Satan, which is sort of what you have in, in, in Revelation, this idea that, that Rome's power is, is demonically inspired. Uh, so it's. I think what's going on there is they, they see someone who is godlike in in many respects to, to the pagan mind, and yet he's turned down this this at uh, this critical moment the offer of, of, of that Satan presents to him an opportunity. Look, take this and you'll you'll be king over the nations. It, but Jesus doesn't do it, and he quotes Deuteronomy um, and so on. So I, it's it's partly you know it's a question of perspective. Uh, and whose perspective is reflected in in this hymn? The other point about the title and, and about perspective is that, that it, you know, dawned on me at, at a certain point. Um, has to do with Paul's perspective and the perspective of the uh, his these early believers in in the Greek world. So Paul is is on his, his missions around Asia Minor and around the Aegean and into Greece and so on. And and what he proclaims is not he doesn't do what he doesn't sort of go back to Jesus and say, I'm telling you about Jesus who went into Galilee and said the kingdom of God is hand. And then the whole story, he's proclaiming a risen Lord um, uh, uh, who's encountered in the spirit, invisible. You can't see him, uh, but he's there seated at the right hand of God. And and you are called to believe that, that at some point in the future, this root of Jesse Will be will rule over the nations and from Romans fifteen the root of Jesse the Isaiah's messianic king will rule over the nations. Uh, but this is a this is this is the starting point not just for pagans who uh, they they believe in this this invisible heavenly figure, also for Jews uh, in in effect who uh, believe Paul's message. So it it. Would have raised uh, questions in in people in Paul's mind and in other people's minds. Well, where did this pe- where did this heavenly figure come from? What was what came before the uh, encounter? This this heavenly Jesus with whom we have this encounter in the spirit, and we call on His name, and and He hears us, and He speaks to His people, and that that whole thing's going on. For various reasons, Paul has a, on occasion to say, "Well, actually, before that, he was." Uh, God sent him to Israel uh, in Galatians four. Born of a woman, born under the law, because you know part of this this whole thing is an outworking of Israel's story. He's not just suddenly appeared in heaven from nowhere. He's he's part of Israel's story. Another reason why it was important for Paul to stress the human uh, pre of of the exalted Jesus. Uh, the experienced the exalted jesus was the the apostles and and many believers would have it were having to suffer uh and they were suffering uh, as jesus suffered so he he depicts jesus as one who suffered faithfully um, it's there in that philippians 2 passage he, he 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 was godlike in many respects but he suffered he rejected he turned down the opportunity to become a king uh, and instead suffered in you know as, as any person does if he suffered because of opposition from his own people from Rome or whatever it was so it, you know Paul one of the things that Paul needs to do is, is help people to grasp the fact that there Jesus suffered before them and God was faithful God raised him from the dead uh, and we know that because we have the spirit so I mean Galatians is important because Paul is precisely sort of going back to the fact that he says, you've had this spiritual experience this is This is how you've come into faith and and it's been confirmed in you because because you've experienced the spirit of the living God. It's all there. It's alive. It's real. You don't need the law. Um, But part of the story that he tells is to sort of go back and connect that experience with the story of Israel um, so that that it's grounded in, in that real experience of a people.
0: Well, it, it looks like a fascinating book. Uh, hopefully, it will be well received and also start some interesting conversations and and debates. <laughs> you yeah, don't activity. need to read it now. I've, to-
1: I've told you the most important bit. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it, I I I enjoyed it. Yeah. But anyway, thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you do great work, Andrew, and I will continue to uh, to read your blog and and to follow your work and to to get your volumes reviewed uh, as I can in Cultural Encounters Journal and. Uh, I just want to thank you again for coming on the program. No, I appreciate it. It's been, it's well, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, folks, this again, this is the podcast for multi faith Matters. Today, my guest has been Andrew Perriman. Look in the program notes and you'll find a link to uh, his blog and uh, links to uh, his books. And I would encourage you to, uh, to read and to, to think through it and the opportunities for reflecting on what it means to be a priestly prophetic people as we wrestle with some of the greatest challenges of our time. Thank you to everyone for watching and listening the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters.